Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Adam Thier, a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center and former director of telecommunications studies at the Cato Institute. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Adam. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Now, I'm suffering from a really bad problem in this time of coronaviruses because years ago, maybe about five years ago, they talked about how there would be burrito drones. So there were going to be these drones that would deliver you burritos. You'd put it in a burrito into a parachute. It would fly over and the drone would, would cut burrito would come down in a parachute and you'd have burrito goodness. We don't have burrito drones. I think they tested them in Blacksburg. Uh, so why don't we have burrito drones? I tell you, it's the clearest example of market failure I've ever seen in my life. Exactly, exactly. No, no. Actually, <laughs> it's a pretty good case of regulatory failure because, of course, the Federal Aviation Administration has been dragging its feet for many, many years on drone freedom. And uh, you know, it's a problem I discuss in a lot of my work, the problem of new technologies. Are they, quote unquote, born free or are they born in captivity, as I call it? And drones were born into regulatory captivity. They were immediately, uh, regulators tried to pigeonhole them into yesterday's archaic metaphysical distinctions. You know, what is this thing? And they said, well, it's a, it's a flying thing. It's an airplane. No, no, no. It's a, you know, it's a model, uh, model hobby uh, aircraft. And it's like, no, it's something new and different. We should treat it new and different. But of course, that's not the way regulatory bureaucracy works. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it... I mean, even if drones as a specific category didn't exist when the regulations were created, the regulations were created in order to address certain kinds of issues in the market, certain kinds of perceived problems or dangers. And those problems or dangers were a result of characteristics of technologies. And so just because they didn't have a word for drones, those characteristics might still apply. So are we really are we really pigeonholing or are we just saying like, look, the things that made us concerned about flying objects in the past ought to also apply to drones, even if we weren't thinking of drones at the time of the regulation? Well, that sounds good in theory, but in reality, uh, the problem with so much technological regulation is that it's sort of set it and forget it, or as I call it in my new book, sort of a build and freeze model of regulation. We create it one day for one type of technology or sector, and then we expect other new emerging technologies to somehow come into line with it, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense. It's it's the same for driverless cars. I mean, driverless cars are really essentially rolling computers. But we're looking at them and saying, well, they're also automobiles, so we got to regulate them like automobiles uh, instead of regulating them like computers, which we don't regulate much at all in this country. So unfortunately, regulatory regimes matter. And these distinctions, these metaphysical distinctions, you know, what is a car, what is an aircraft, um, are really, really important to de in determining what literally gets off the ground in this case. Now, your new book, as you mentioned, uh, published by Cato, is called Evasive Entrepreneurs. So we've kind of touched on it here, uh, but we've also touched on the fact that entrepreneurship is changed a little bit, but what is an evasive entrepreneur? Well, evasive entrepreneurs have always been with us, but first to define it, just generally speaking, an evasive entrepreneur is uh, innovators who do not always conform with social or legal norms. They buck up against uh, those norms and sometimes actively try to evade them. Another term for this might be regulatory entrepreneur. This might be a, a, an entrepreneur who's behaving evasively in the marketplace, but then also sort of sets out to intentionally challenge or change the law through their innovative activities. And in essence, policy change becomes part 
part of their business model. And that's clearly been the case for a lot of sharing economy operators, for example. They set out to actively challenge the law in the marketplace and then get it changed, and they did. And so evasive entrepreneurialism is um, growing in this country and around the world, I argue in my book, because what's happened is there's been a sort of rapid decentralization and diffusion of technological capabilities. And these new technologies of freedom or technologies of resistance, as I call them in the book, are spreading like wildfire. And this has empowered the masses to take action in a way that wasn't possible in the past and to really reevaluate uh, longstanding and crusty archaic regulations and policies that may defy common sense uh, or, uh, or the, the consent of the governed. Now, it's a, you kind of allude to it in, uh, in your book, too, which I've pointed this out a bunch, that there's something freeing about this, too, in the sense, in the, in the even the libertarian sense, that we might be able to get a freer world. I've said before that Cato could have devoted its entire 40-plus year existence to only writing papers about taxicab cartels. And it would have been our entire, you know, reason for existence, and we would have done less to expose them than Uber did in six months. That's exactly right. In fact, I say that in chapter two of the book when I when I tell the story of the sharing economy experience and specifically ride sharing. For the better part of, in fact, seventy years, I would argue, economists, political scientists, lawyers, and many others argued that taxicab regulations and hotel industry regulations and taxes were essentially an anti-consumer fiat that were geared to serve special interests because these laws and taxes have been captured by these affected interests. I mean, it, we got to the point where the U.S. Federal Trade Commission was coming out in favor of like deregulating in the city, the municipal level, but really didn't have the jurisdictional authority to tell various captured taxicab commissions like, you got to do this or else. But they actually thought about trying to use antitrust laws to stop this at the state or municipal level. Well, unfortunately, all of that good logic and economic and, and legal evidence, all of that didn't matter to, at all. It didn't amount to anything. But then all of a sudden, 2010 rolls around and Uber pops up and then shortly thereafter Lyft and almost overnight, the entire situation changes. All of a sudden, we are giving consumers a taste of true competition and choice. And once we tasted those waters, we weren't going back. And so what I argue in the book is that in that case, evasive entrepreneurialism or regulatory entrepreneurialism this essentially is an effort to change the political dynamic, to change the sort of leverage you have in a negotiation or a discussion about what the law will be. Because let's be clear, it's not like there's anarchy in taxicab you know, land right now or hotels. I mean, we still have a lot of laws and regulations. But the reality is, is that we now have opened the door to choice and competition and options that we did not have before precisely because of the pace of technological change. It's also interesting that uh, you imagine any science fiction movie. I mean, some movies like The Fifth Element is about a taxi driver, but like every science fiction movie, you can imagine these crazy new worlds with flying cars and all this stuff. But there's always taxis. So like they can't, they can't, they couldn't get their heads outside of the taxi paradigm, uh, which which is something interesting too about what entrepreneurs do to like envision futures that maybe people weren't thinking about even when they are envisioning the future. That's funny because my son and I just recently, we watched uh, Escape from New York where Ernest Borgnine plays a taxi cab driver on Manhattan Island when it's turned into a prison in the future. And uh, you're right. It's sometimes we're so locked into thinking about 
the way an industry or technology works that we can't possibly imagine a world without it. And this is why innovators and entrepreneurs are so important because they break with tradition and they don't accept the status quo. And that is the fundamental driver, I argue, of human betterment. In my book, I say basically this is what moves the needle on progress. The fact that people are sometimes willing to stand up and say, we're going to do things differently. We've got a new and better way of doing something. It strikes me, though, as you give these examples, like particularly Uber, but this is this seems to be the case, too, for a lot of permissionless innovators in in the Silicon Valley space, is there's almost a cognitive or maybe it's a cultural dissonance that we see at play. So we've got we've got these cartels and people tried to get rid of them and they couldn't because they were entrenched and most people weren't, you know, voters weren't paying attention to this. So the politicians, you know, were were easier to sway. Um Lots of people recognize they were bad. And then an innovator like Uber comes along and introduces a service that huge numbers of people flock to. And and basically everyone who uses it immediately just recognizes how much better of an experience it is as a consumer to use Uber versus hailing a cab in New York City. Um, but at the same time, these companies and and the founders who kind of embody them in the public consciousness are – quite widely despised by huge portions of the public and and interestingly in particular like a lot of like the technology sector like the tech press is constantly going after these guys and so well well using this stuff and is there something that explains that disconnect that we we want to take advantage of the people who are not asking permission but at the same time we're kind of mad at them for doing so? Yeah, of course. I think there's an expectation that people should, quote unquote, you know, play by the book or by the rules and that we want people to fall in line usually. But at the same time, we want choices and competition. And sometimes we in the public don't understand how it comes about. It's it's complicated. Um, I don't think everybody fully appreciates the problem of regulatory capture and, and just the, the sheer dysfunctionalism in legislative and regulatory processes today um, and our inability to adapt these systems. This is in the book, I talk a lot about the problem of demo sclerosis, as Jonathan Rauch calls it, um, just our, our our government's inability to, to 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 adapt to the times, and so it takes it, it takes entrepreneurs and, and free thinkers to come out of the uh, with new ideas and, and try to uh, you know break with that mold if we're going to change the situation. But in the in the process, a lot of people get angry because their norms, their institutions, their businesses, their whatever is what's thrown by the wayside. And so clearly, if you're a taxi cab uh, medallion owner or you're a, a hotel, uh, you know, chain owner, you don't you don't like the sound of any of this competition. You're going to make a big stink about it. And so it's not just that; it's just all of the regulatory advocates who think that well, we've got a settled way of doing things in this field, and in theory, we believe that it it, it serves some higher value or well-intentioned uh, ideal, even if it really doesn't. And so, uh, I, you know, this is a very controversial thing, but I think at some point we have to realize that this is ultimately the better way to, to move the needle on progress than to expect that we're going to actually get positive change through uh, democratic norms and processes because we've tried and have gotten nowhere in that regard. Uh, I, I begin the book by talking about what Deirdre McCloskey talks about in her new books about how there was a time when innovation was considered heresy, her heretical in, in, you know, in, in, in medieval times, but it's, it's still the case today. Uh, Calustus Juma wrote a whole book called Innovation and Its Enemies and, and talks about this and has numerous case studies throughout history leading all the way up to today with like genetically modified organisms. And, 
you know, nobody likes it. You know, the, the people who benefit from the status quo don't want to see it changed and they'll make the case for why it's good and should be preserved. And sometimes people in the public will believe it. Um, but once you tell them like, look, aren't you happy? You have these new options at your disposal. Would you, I, I often ask crowds when I said like, would you all like to see the sharing economy go away tomorrow or your smartphones or any other technologies or devices they now take advantage of? Not a single one of them would give them up. But then they say, but they should do things by the book and they should do it, you know, with change the law, the norms. Well, that's not the way it's usually working. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they don't even know how to do it. Uh, Right. And I think when Austin killed Uber, a friend of mine who, who went, who went there said that, uh, it was bizarre watching these college students who'd never hailed a cab in their life, like walk out of the bars on Fridays and have no idea what to do, like wandering around, like getting into people's cars, like trying to get together rides, you know, cause it becomes such the norm. But on that point, uh, with the banning, like, for example, the countries and localities at different times that have banned Uber, um, or that they had sort of maybe a gray area of legality. Is it okay for these companies to break laws? I mean, that kind of was Uber's model. I, I remember, I don't know, Adam, if you remember, because you're also in DC, that, that I got an email sometime around 2011 that offered me 20 free rides with Uber, uh, which at that time was a black car service. Uh, and I, I thought they were going to like sell me Amway products or, or timeshares in Mexico, you know, like during the ride, but actually it ended up being, it being real, but they were trying to, you know, create customers before even asking permission. But is that okay? Because that kind of law breaking. Well, well, generally speaking, no, it's not. I, I don't want to recommend that people go out and actively try to break the law. But the question I raise in the book is a practical one, which is what happens when the law is so confusing, so inefficient, so utterly captured and so backwards that you don't really have any other choice? Or worse yet, in some cases, the law is so voluminous and, and complex and confusing, you don't even understand it. You can't even really tell, you know, like, what is the law in this area? I think that's what's confronting not only a lot of entrepreneurs and capitalists, but it's, it's what's confronting a lot of consumers. And frankly, the reason we're seeing so much evasive entrepreneurialism today, I argue in the book, is precisely because of this problem. And we've never done a thorough spring cleaning of the regulatory state. We've never gone out and said, do these licenses make any sense anymore? Do these con laws, these certificate of needs laws make any sense? Do these FDA regs? We All we do is accumulate and accumulate layer after layer. And then all of a sudden, we have a crisis like the current one we're in today, the COVID crisis, where people all of a sudden wake up and say, wait a minute, what the hell's going on here? I mean, the most shocking thing to me, I don't know about you guys, but over the last two months has been just reading the headlines in the New York Times and in the Washington Post about outrage over FDA intransigence and behavior. It's like, where were you guys at before? You know, and they're saying, well, now it's great that everybody's going out and, you know, distillers are making their own hand sanitizers and people are, you know, sewing their own face, face masks and people are using 3D printers to create ventilators. And they're applauding this. And all I'm doing is screaming and saying, you know, this is all illegal, right? You guys defended all of this before. So what's going on? What what justifies this being okay today, but it wasn't okay yesterday? It's a it's a key point I make in the book that defending evasive entrepreneurialism is easy after it occurs. But few defend it before or as it's happening. But the COVID crisis has changed that. 
all of a sudden we're saying like, yes, this is great. Go out and convert those breathing machines into, you know, working ventilators using 3D printed parts or go ahead, you know, distillers, make your own hand sanitizers kind of thing. People are applauding it. Um, Andy Kessler of the Wall Street Journal had a column two weeks ago called Innovate from Your Couch, America, basically, you know, cheering on people actively engaged in evasive entrepreneurialism. So maybe things have changed because of this crisis. It It's interesting as you say that it makes me think of um, the – that thesis about crisis capitalism and, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, which is not a great thesis, but it's, it lines up somewhat with this that we're, we're watching, you know, we've got a, we've got a crisis and suddenly the, the entrepreneurs are taking advantage of it, um, and taking advantage of a, a regime that's suddenly more friendly to them, you know, moving fast and potentially breaking things. But the, the role of crisis in this, because as you're saying this, on the flip side of it, a lot of the regulations that we have come about because someone told us there was a crisis, right? Like we need we need to regulate this thing, like vaping. We need to regulate this thing because there's a there's a you know looming crisis of lots of people dying from something if if they all vape, and so everyone seems to latch on to a crisis, and this just happens to be a crisis where the the narrative of it, the immediacy of it, and what the people on the sides of it are trying to do happens to advantage the permissionless innovation over more regulation. But I guess is there so my question is 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 there a way to have this kind of movement without a precipitating crisis or at least imagining one? Well, in, in my book, I, I talk about this, like, what's the dynamic? What what moves change forward? How does this happen? And, you know, sometimes, yes, it is a crisis, but other times it's just the pace of technological change. Sometimes a technology just comes in and moves so fast that the law just really can't keep up and consumers demand it and we want it so fast and we need it that we want, we're not going to give it up once we have it. I mean, you think about the situation around 2007 with uh, smartphones and when Steve Jobs came out with the iPhone and then Google quickly followed with Android devices, pretty soon it became the all-purpose you know, technological Swiss army knife that we all had to have in our pockets and purses at all times. There's just no way conceivable that we we're going to take that back. That wasn't crisis-driven. That was a demand-driven function of the fact that consumers truly valued having that much convenience and technological sophistication in their possession. So sometimes it can happen in other contexts. And the question is, you know, what are the impediments that can stop that diffusion process from happening? And it goes back to my point about technologies that are, quote unquote, born free versus born under regulatory captivity. This explains why it's so hard for us to get drones in the sky, to get driverless cars moving, to get supersonic jets, to get a lot of the bigger physical kind of things moving because those are easier to regulate and they've got really convoluted and, and longstanding regulatory regimes that govern every aspect of innovation. The crisis is forcing some changes in some of those institutions. I mean, I, I clearly think we're going to see some changes at the FDA. We already have. I mean, the sheer number of laws that have been sunset or suspended in the, in the midst of this crisis is astonishing to me. I recently wrote a paper with two of my colleagues at Mercatus calling for a fresh start initiative whereby we use a BRAC commission model to try to sunset many of the laws and policies that have been paused during this crisis. Um, and so clearly this crisis has advanced the ball in that regard. But even before that happened, 
the Food and Drug Administration was grappling with the question of what to do about smartphones, what to do about 3D printers, what to do about social media sites, because people are utilizing these new technologies to go out and act independently and do innovative things regardless of what federal or state law says. And that's a truly interesting phenomenon in its own right and not necessarily always crisis-driven. It's it, A lot of the discussions around, especially in the libertarian sphere, we've seen a lot of discussions about you know, some people are realizing that bureaucracy and many of these rules never were that good. And, you know, could this be a moment of freedom and liberation or are we going to get a surveillance state out of it? I could, I could go either way probably. But I think it's interesting on a broader level that some of these entrepreneurial advancements, they happen so fast, right? So 10 years ago, there wasn't Uber. Uh, 15 years ago, there wasn't an iPhone. Uh, and you have a generation that comes up that expects these things to be easy. Like, why isn't there an app for that? And it's interesting when it collides with government, which is just not easy. And I, and you wonder if that will help increase the demand for getting rid of some of these ossified systems, just that younger people expect them to be served by innovation and the government is not doing it. And, and maybe this is showing that that's an actual, you've seen in this crisis, how many ways that they didn't do it. I think that's a great point. I address that in uh, chapter five of my book, and I talk about this sort of this back and forth dance, if you will, um, between governments and technologies and technologists and innovators. And I, I talk about this question about, you know, uh, does technology constrain or expand state power? Uh, and, you know, can tech you know, address the the power of nation states or help keep it in check. And it, it, I have a nuanced answer to that. This is a question that a lot of libertarian folks have debated for a long time. My uh, One of my bosses uh, and colleagues, Tyler Cowen, um, wrote uh, provocatively about this question about uh, does technology drive the growth of government in a, in a 2009 paper. And his answer was decidedly different than what most libertarians want to hear. His argument was like, look, nothing facilitated the growth of the modern state like technology did, and specifically transportation and communications technologies, which made it much, much easier for governments to surveil and control people and specifically to tax them. And, you know, this, this is a, a challenging thesis for those of us who want to believe technology is uh, something that emancipates, that it frees us, that it gives us new capabilities. And I really do believe that, but we have to provide some caveats as to why it's also empowered the state and how to keep that in check, how the state uses technology against us and against our liberties. And so, again, I devote chapter five of my my book to that and try to provide a, a balanced approach and, and talk about this dance that goes back and forth between uh, uh, sort of like checking the state and empowering it. It's also interesting because you, as I was reading your book, at one point I, I thought about uh, Charles Murray's book and then a couple pages later, you referenced Charles Murray's book, uh, By the People, where you get to, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, demosclerosis and also the kludgeocracy uh, aspect that Steve Tellis has coined. But on one level, if you're looking at the system we have, the regulatory structures in place, the regulatory structures on top of regulatory structures, some of which were designed in, say, the 1930s and haven't really been updated that much, uh, it's it's somewhat hopeless if you're kind of a libertarian and you say, are we going to get a massive wave of regulatory oversight, a re overhaul and repealing of regulations, repealing of, of statutes that are outdated? Is that going to happen? I mean, Congress can hardly vote on uh, you know, a stimulus package at a time of crisis, much less try and figure out how to overhaul the FCC or something. But maybe uh, this this entrepreneur aspect is the best way of getting people to see what is ossified. 
Yep, uh, that's exactly right. And as you can tell from having read the book, I, I'm after 30 years of covering public policy for five different nonprofit organizations, including Cato. I have grown to be sort of a a, a, a embittered old man who just basically looks at this and says, "There's absolutely no chance of getting serious reform through democratic processes." I mean, I. I I spent a lot of time as a young man trying to figure out how to reform the FCC, both in comprehensive ways, but then in just narrowly tailored ways and getting absolutely nowhere. But it wasn't just the FCC. It was the FDA and so many other agencies and the FAA uh, that I've taken on and dealt with. And and we're getting nowhere. I mean, in my own lifetime, I'd have to go back to my elementary school days in the 1970s when I could think of a major comprehensive deregulatory initiative undertaken in this country for airlines. And uh, ironically enough, it was pushed through by Democrats, as you know. And so I look at the situation today and say, like, look, I've, I've basically given up on Congress. In fact, an essay that I wrote before this book was published that was derived from this book was called Congress as a Non-Actor in Tech Policy. But it's not just true for tech policy. It's true for many other areas. Congress just is checked out of the process. They have, they have, they've shunned their oversight role, and they don't do the, the occasional spring cleaning I, I alluded to. They transfer the authority to these agencies. They delegate it uh, blanket authority with a lot of bags of money attached, nothing changes except, except technology changes. Innovating, innovative minds come together and find ways to work around these archaic, crusty old uh, systems and the kludges that have been put in place. And that's why I talk about innovation as the new checks and balances. That in, in essence, this is all I really have faith in keeping our, our liberties intact and our, and our economies sort of spontaneous today because I can't find much hope for getting serious reform in any other way. I'm curious about the role of hardware versus software in this story because a lot of the regulatory barriers that we seem to see are hardware-based, like drones are regulated as a product and you can't build them or deploy them. Uber is cars driving around that can be pulled over by the cops because they're not doing the right thing per the regulations and so on. But the area, especially over the last 15 years where we've seen the most rapid proliferation of new tech is in software. Like once we got the phone, the phone started replacing via software everything, you know, enormous numbers of other things that we used to use and enormous numbers of other devices that we used to use. And I'm I'm reminded of Mark Andreessen's line about how software is eating the world, that, you know, all of these things, all of these businesses are getting turned into apps. And and it seems like apps are harder to regulate, that that you can first, you know, they're they move really quick. We can install them really quick. There aren't as many regulations about them. We used to have like regulations on what encryption technology, but by and large, software is not as heavily regulated as hardware. Um, and it's also can be, um, it can be decentralized in a much more thorough way than hardware. Like hardware needs someone building it and it needs a factory that can be shut down and a business that's providing the funds where software can be open source with a bunch of anonymous people who put together an app that can you know replace your bank and hide you from you know snooping feds um and and so does that does the move to software as software replacing a lot of the things we once needed hardware for mean that this positive story you're telling potentially accelerates 
Yes, I think it does. And you're making a very important point that I deal with at several chapters in the book when I basically just say, look, physicality matters. There's a difference between the world of atoms and the worlds of bits. And it's no doubt easier to regulate the world of atoms. If you can hold it, touch it, kick it, whatever, then it means that it's easier to find and you know tax and regulate. Um, and so I talk a lot about innovation arbitrage in the book and how innovation and innovators often will move around to wherever they're treated most hospitably by various jurisdictions. Well, that is greatly facilitated by digitization and the intangibility of the modern information economy. But not everything can be intangible or digital in character. It can take on aspects of digital technology. It can utilize computing and almost everything does today. Um, but at the end of the day, it still matters if it's a physical device. That being said, your second point is important, which is that these devices are only growing more intangible or you know, computerized and digitized. And that is creating a serious problem for regulators. And it's leading to what I spent a lot of time talking about in chapters four and five in the book, the compliance paradox. The, the, the problem that uh, increasingly with uh, when legal and regulatory efforts fail to uh, reverse unwanted behavior, a lot of regulators will unfortunately just double down on trying to regulate. But if they do that in the digital sphere, we've seen what happens. This is the story of why so many innovators and venture capital flocked out of Europe in the 1990s and 2000s as the EU really went hard and doubled down on their use of like privacy directives and data directives. And, you know, America became the hotbed of the digital revolution. And so that's going to only continue because more and more of our economy is service-based and digital and intangible. So it's a good news story, but we have to be careful about it. We have to understand that that does not mean we're going to have supersonic jets anytime soon if the FAA doesn't want them. And we're not going to have drones flying through the air just because they rely on you know AI and machine learning. And same with driverless cars. It takes a lot of hard work. It still will require reforms. And in some cases, it will require some evasive entrepreneurialism. Your question, your, your concept of innovation arbitrage, it kind of reminds me, though, what some of our economist friends talk about with tax policy, the capital can move across borders and you can only tax your citizens so much before they can go across borders and find someplace else to do. So we have seen this in the world with say, I think it's Liechtenstein. That's like the crypto capital and also Switzerland. Uh, we've attempted to do some things here, but are we, do you think America general is sort of lagging behind? Is there any, of these burgeoning areas you discussed where we're at the forefront or have we accumulated so much dead weight of regulation through our somewhat too moderate to extremely dysfunctional governing apparatus that we're getting left behind? Well, we, we are getting left behind in some important sectors. The United States is that is. I, I, I think it's clearly the case that America's food and drug law and medical device regulations are so unbelievably restrictive, so rooted in the precautionary principle that we have actually seen uh, not just China and many other Asian countries advance the ball further on things like genetics, uh, testing and editing. But we're even seeing, in some cases, Europe move a little bit further uh, ahead on that front. Now, it's too early to know who exactly is going to prevail in that or in the biotech revolution, uh, nanotechnology. It's still an open question. And America still has one enormous advantage, which is it, it, it's the home of a huge venture capital community, which is willing to, to use risk capital to take bets, to make bets on um, unproven technologies. But what's most interesting about that, and I tell that story in this book and in my previous book on permissionless innovation, is to note how many 
major tech companies today that have succeeded so wildly in the digital sphere and the internet sphere have openly said like, hey, we're going to be very careful about our bets on health tech and health innovation because we are confronted with a regulatory uh, leviathan there that is just impenetrable. It's impossible to, to navigate that. And so that is probably what concerns me most that America could lose on. But I don't know. I'm still hopeful. A lot of those companies have come back like Google and Apple. And after initially saying, no, 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 we don't want any part of it. They've actually now made major plays in this sphere. And so have many other uh, tech companies in the so-called Internet of Things space. So I think it's still too early to tell. But there's no doubt America could be on the losing side of innovation arbitrage uh, in some of those new sectors. Okay, so we, this has been a moderately uh... – Right up to this point, I feel like this conversation is – I can't decide if it's pessimistic or optimistic. <laughs> uh, you do both – you describe the way some of these things actually have behaved. Uh, one of the things that you talk about, which sometimes is the only thing that can be done, is that regulators themselves just stop enforcing laws, right? which is maybe something we should be against if we're for rule of law, but then also take a look at – the size of the federal register and say, if we actually had equally applied rule of law now, we'd all be in prison. Um, so, I mean, like, is that something we should be endorsing as like a short stopgap? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're pointing to what will probably be the most controversial portion of the book for many libertarians, which is when I start talking about the the explosion of so-called rule departures and the growth of soft law, quote unquote. And what are those two things? Well, rule departures are just basically any uh, anytime a, a regulatory agency uh, essentially turns a blind eye to the enforcement of a, of a rule or its violation of, of the law, or it actively basically ignores it, just says, you know, we, we're not even going to try to deal with our own rules are so complicated. We're just going to see what happens. And one of the ways they do this, the agencies do this, is through the use of so-called soft law. Soft law is basically most easily defined by its opposite, which is it's not hard law. It's not promulgated. It's not clearly defined by Administrative Procedures Act regulations. It's not in the Federal Register. It's more the form of takes the form of things like agency guidance or best practices or workshop reports or speeches. And this is something that most uh, libertarians and, and even a great many conservatives have very much lived in fear of. And I spent the first 15 years of my life trying to stop all of that nonsense and saying this is really troubling and dangerous stuff. But here's what's interesting is that a lot of the rule departures we've seen over the last 15 years and a lot of the soft law efforts by agencies is an attempt by the agencies to acknowledge the pacing problem, the fact that technology is moving as fast as we've described and their inability to keep up, but also to say like, no, we still want to have a say. We want to play a role in governance, but it's not the same role as in the past. It's not a command and control thou shall not approach. It's more like, hey, you should come talk to us approach. And so what's happening for a lot of these technologies I described, and just to go back to the FDA example, is the FDA is just issuing one guidance document after another saying, here's some best practices for 3D printing. Here's some uh, uh, approaches you should consider for social media conversations about health and technology. Here's some approaches you should consider for Internet of Things. And yet it never is clear what's legal and what's illegal. Now, I look at that and say, well, this is arbitrary government at its worst. And then I look at it as a prag pragmatic analyst and say, but innovation is happening. And optimally, we would reform these laws. We would clean them up. The agencies would be shrank. Their budgets would be tightened. And we would have smarter rules and regulations. Practically speaking, there isn't a chance in hell that's going to happen. 
And this is probably what's changed most of my own approach since my times at Cato, which is I've come to be more of a realist about the regulatory state. Again, no agencies have been downsized or, or, or eliminated in, in the last 30 years. Um, I don't think there's a chance in hell we're going to get rid of the FDA or any of these other agencies that a lot of libertarians say should get rid of. But I do know this. Technology is changing the political dynamic and the amount of leverage we have when we go in to have discussions about giving technology a fair shake. doesn't mean we're always going to win in those battles, but it does mean it's a different kind of governance environment than the one we came out of in the past. It seems, though, that that how optimistic we should be about that particular – call it you know safety valve on innovation – scales with the nature of the innovation because if you're – you know, if you're you're three guys in a basement who are going to code up a you know encrypted messenger that might run foul of certain things, and there's there's this soft law and there's been guidance and you think you're following it, but then the agency says you know oh no no we're gonna we're gonna stop you you're out you know however many months of three guys' time, but if instead you're trying to build supersonic jets which have you know huge upfront costs or you're trying to do new medical devices as you mentioned or uh, biotech research where you have to spend billions before you know if it's even going to work it seems like any any degree of uncertainty is going to almost be too much uncertainty like the last thing you want is to dump a billion dollars into something and then have the government say eh you know we're not so sure about that one yeah. Amen. Absolutely. I mean, this is why we cannot and should not ever stop trying to push for legislative changes when we can get them. And this is, you know, I say this on, you know, the introduction of the book in the last page that it's very, very important we not give up entirely on trying to push for those sorts of policy reforms in using the sort of traditional uh, academic, you know, evidence that we've tried to bring to muster on these issues. But uh, again, I'm just being realistic about where we stand today, because I know we have spent so many, so many years trying in so many sectors to do exactly that. And we can't even get very simple things through. And I mean, at the state level, it's almost worse. I saw an article uh, just a few days ago where someone asked a, uh, a regulator in New Hampshire, which is a pretty libertarian state, but they too have an occupational licensing board for barbershops and, and hair salons. And somebody called the head of it and said, is it okay that all these people are cutting their hair or their loved one's hair at home? And the woman who runs the board couldn't answer. She's like, you know, I'm not really sure. I think it's okay, but I'm not really sure. And I'm like, my gosh, we can't even get to the point in this country where we tell people it's okay to cut their own hair at home anymore. You know, hell with it. Go cut your damn hair. Right. You know, that's, I think, our answer that we're at there. And so practically speaking, and not, of course, just for haircutting, but for a whole hell of a lot of other technologies, we're at that point now where people are just saying they're frustrated with it and they're going to take these steps to basically evade. What I argue again in the book is that there's this balance, that we need to pursue the policy perform reforms. We need to try to do things the traditional way. But at the same time, I'm, I'm ready to start cheerleading on technologists and innovators who are willing to buck the status quo and say, we're going to blaze a new trail. We're going to try to do something new and different to improve uh, human welfare in, in multiple ways. How far does this go, though? So your book strikes me to some extent as if you took the – I could see it as an argument that's similar to the what you'd find in like Usenet groups of agorists and crypto anarchists, but we've put a tie on it and made it you know respectable in Washington, D.C. circles uh, in, in the sense of it's – it seems to be gesturing in that direction without going all the way. But why 
why aren't these arguments or in fact, are they like an argument for going all the way that we should simply like we should innovate to our heart's content. And if the state tries to stop us, it tries to stop us. And if we can find ways to route around it or hide our activity from it, we should take those and and just build kind of an alternative economy and communication sphere and world outside of the reach of this thing, which is the crypto anarchist argument. Right. How is your is is your argument different from theirs? Yeah, I think it is. And in fact, as you probably saw in I think uh, the third or fourth page of the book, I say, if you're looking for a crypto anarchist manifesto, you, you're not going to like this book because I at times I get pretty squishy as I just did when talking about soft law and giving regulators some leeway or working with them. And this is a lot of what I do today is, is work with regulators to try to take a different approach to these issues. Um, at the same time, I try to get regulators to acknowledge that we live in a new world and that they should accept some of the new realities. I think realistically, what's different here, what I try to present that's different than a traditional sort of like crypto anarchist approach is that I just don't say F the law, you know, screw the regulators. And I, I take the concerns of the critics seriously. I spent a lot of time in the last two chapters of the book talking about existential risk and talking about technologies and technological processes that pose a serious threat to human welfare. And there are many, many critics who want to see those technologies bottled up and shut down entirely because of it. And they would impose a strict precautionary principle approach to those sectors and technologies. I look at that and say both for pragmatic reasons and, 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 and principled ones, we should reject that thinking. That ultimately, most of these technologies, most of these genies are going to get out of the bottle. That we need a different approach to them. But we need to be thoughtful about the privacy, safety, security types of trade-offs that exist with these new technologies. This is something that uh, Matt Feeney's done a lot of good work on at Cato, and, and he and I've worked on this issue of things like dual-use technologies for like surveillance and so on and so forth. I mean, drones are wonderful and awesome, but my God, they can be frightening as hell when used in the wrong ways. And of course, facial recognition technologies, biometrics, and a whole host of other tools. 3D printers are awesome. They're incredible, but boy, they can be used to create some interesting and some maybe dangerous things. We have to have serious responses to these things. I think the problem with a lot of the crypto-anarchist crowd is they, they don't bother. They just say, eh, we don't, we'll figure that out. You know, that's, that's, don't worry about that. Or well, they'll say, well, we, there'll be market mechanisms. Well, maybe there will be, or maybe we'll need a more sophisticated sort of an approach, which I talk about in the book, sort of a multi-stakeholder sort of uh, collectivized approach, but not one that is based on strict government precautionary regulation, more of a decentralized approach to governance and in one that acknowledges technology is going to change, should change, and will ultimately on net be better off for us than it does. And that's something that I think is decidedly different than the, the traditional sort of crypto anarchist approach to these kind of things. So let's talk about some of those uh, proposals you have to get to get out of this morass. I mean, people will continue to innovate. Uh, some, some of them will be breaking the law. Some of them will not realize they're breaking the law. I think the real tragedy are the ones who, who don't even consider innovating, like you mentioned with some of the medical stuff, because they know that the law is so damaging and impossible to get around. So those are the, the thing, the dogs that never bark, the things that we would never even imagine. But you have some proposals of, of what might be some steps in the right direction. Yeah, so there's a couple of uh, practical reforms that I've been pushing for many, many years at the federal and state and even local level, uh, sort of generic frameworks for like reform. W one of them that I talk about quite a bit in my work is the need for what I call the innovator's presumption, that whenever we are crafting any sort of policy to govern technology or innovation, the presumption should be in favor 
of the right to innovate and the right to earn a living and that we should give innovators, generally speaking, the green light unless there's an, a very compelling reason not to. The problem with so much policy, so much regulation, is that it's got the opposite default. The, the default is one that says, let's give them the red light or the yellow light and say, it's a mother may I kind of an approach. You have to come and beg for permission. That's why Tim Sandifer has a whole book called The Permission Society talking about this problem. And evasive entrepreneurs try to challenge that permission society quite directly. But what if we could, when laws are being written, write into them something about how the benefit of the doubt is in favor of innovation and that it should be generally allowed by default. The second thing we should be doing when we write technology policies or regulations is we need to get more serious about some sort of sunsetting. I talk in my book about the idea of Moore's law for technology policy or innovation policy. Moore's law obviously is the principle that the power of a semiconductor doubles about every 18 uh, months to uh, two years and the cost generally comes down by half. Moore's law has governed the pace of innovation now in the computing and digital technology sectors for many, many decades. Companies are expected to reinvent their business models every 18 months to two years because of it. And yet governments never reinvent their business models. C c companies you know, throw their business models out. Regulators just keep regulating as if nothing's changed. So what we could do is whenever we're crafting policy is right into it. This sense, this provision will sunset after two years. If you want to put it back in the books, you can. And that's a simple thing, but I, I think it's a powerful one because it forces that spring cleaning that I talked about that we never seem to do of the regulatory state. Instead, we just have endless regulatory accumulation. And then finally, I mentioned something earlier in the podcast that um, I just proposed with my colleagues, which is for the rules that we already have in place, we need to do a thorough evaluation of them. We need to inventory the ones that no longer work. We need to get rid of the crusty, archaic ones that should have been off the books many, many decades ago. We need an institutional reform mechanism to do that. I think the BRAC Commission idea is something that is, is one of the few things that had great success in recent memory, which was a way to get rid of unneeded military bases in congressional districts. We basically had an independent body study all of them, compile a report for which ones could be sunset or eliminated. And then we had an up or down vote on the entire package with no possibility of amendments, no possibility of tweaking it. You had to be all in or all against. Yeah, it was, and, a con it was Congress figuring out what it was sort of unable to do due to public choice constraints. Exactly right. And they obviously were never going to allow their district to be sunset unless they could have a conspicuous up or down vote that says, well, look, I was just voting on a big package and a lot of other you know people had to you know face the same fate. Their base got taken away too. So it gave them some coverage with their electorate or their people back home. So that is the kind of reform mechanism we're going to ultimately need for a lot of technology policy so that we're not applying you know things that were put in place for Governing, you know, uh, uh, airplanes in the 50s are applying to drones today or automobiles from the 70s are, are governing driverless cars. And yet we still have that. I mean, you may remember the section of my book where I talk about the fact that we have crazy laws still in the books in some municipalities for cars. Things like in New Jersey, it's still a part of the law that you're supposed to honk every time before you pass someone. I mean, you'd get murdered if you honked every time before you pass someone in New Jersey. Or in other communities, they have red flag laws from 100 years ago that say a man is supposed to run in front of any woman who's occupying or is driving a vehicle under 10 miles per hour and wave red flags to let the world know a woman's coming in a car. I, <laughs> I would think most women would find that pretty offensive. Again, regulators don't enforce it, and we ignore it. But why does that exist? It exists because we never clean up yesterday's messes. So we need a mechanism to do that, to get serious about uh, cleaning up the regulatory state. So back to the most important question, 
right now in this coronavirus pandemic, I would love a burrito drone to be dropped from the sky. And I bet, I bet a lot of people would love a burrito drone. So why don't we have them and can we get them? And in general, are you optimistic about things like that and other things, you know, coming out in the benefit of, of humanity and, and burrito lovers everywhere? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually optimistic about burrito drones and, and pizza drones and, and more specifically, beer drones. I'm a beer fanatic. And I think what's happened in the midst of this crisis for, for beer delivery, beer, wine, and spirits delivery is absolutely astonishing. And it's been happening in almost every state and locality. And I noted, uh, I noticed that uh, Governor Abbott in Texas tweeted out uh, last week how it's been a great success. People seem to love it. Maybe we should just keep it when this whole crisis is over. And I said, amen, brother. That's exactly exactly what we need. I hate to say that it really does take a crisis to change attitudes and policies, but indeed, sometimes it does. And in this case, something like a delivery drone, I think it, we've paved the way for it to some extent by basically saying, look, we're delivering you know, beer and wine through cars. Why can't we do it in some other way that isn't create such a, a, an environmentally insensitive footprint? We can just say, let's have a drone deliver it directly to your house. I think that really is possible in coming years. And I think the FAA is slowly starting to change its policies to allow it. I think the bigger problem there is one that I think a lot of people haven't anticipated yet. It's going to be a local control problem. It's going to be what happens when you have the proverbial neighbor with a shotgun coming out to like shoot your drone down out of your backyard. And this has happened in many communities. And uh, I think that's going to be the interesting thing to see how it plays out. Like how is my HOA in my community here going to handle it in Arlington, Virginia? Uh, how is the local uh, zoning board going to handle it? That's going to have to be worked out. That's that's a little bit more complicated. But I'm still optimistic about your burrito drone, and uh, I think you'll they'll be getting one sometime soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.